Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Dr. Fei-Fei Li is a trailblazer in the world of AI. But how does she keep going when things don't go as planned? Once I identify that audacious quest, it is relatively easy for me to tune out the other voices. It's Monday, December 4th, and you guessed it, it's still Science Friday. I'm Sci-Fi producer Shoshana Buxbaum. Just about every day, there's a new headline about AI. It feels sometimes like it's about to upend every part of society. But how exactly did we get to this moment? And how worried or excited should we be about the future of AI? Ira recently sat down with Dr. Fei-Fei Li to discuss how she came to understand the importance of what she calls human-centered artificial intelligence. Dr. Fei-Fei Li is the author of the book, The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. She's also the founding director of the Human-Centered AI Institute that's at Stanford University out there in California. Dr. Li, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira, for inviting me. Nice to have you. Now, I mentioned this in the in- When you say that AI needs to be human-centered, explain that for us, please. Well, okay, well, let's begin with what AI is. AI is a piece of tool. I know it's a very intricate and intriguing piece of tool that humans have made, and I do believe this is a uh, piece of tool that is very powerful and will transform human society, will transform business and all that. But at the end of the day, it's a piece of tool. Tools are made by humans are uh, being deployed by humans and uh, should be used properly by humans. And no matter how you think about it, I put human in the very center of this technology because of our responsibility in the creation and application of it. But people view these more than just tools. They view them as intelligent tools and are fearful that they may become more intelligent than the tool makers. I I hear you. I I do hear you. And a lot of this is because it's it's new, it's unknown. And when we face something new and unknown, it's scary. And this is not the first time humanity has faced that. We think about the history when we first discover fire as a species, when we created electricity, when we created, you know, PC, just every step along the way, major technological mm-hmm. uh, advancement in human history creates anxiety and and disruption. This is the same. And of course, it is an intelligent piece of tool in the sense of It takes data, understands patterns, help to make decisions, and all that. But as far as a piece of software, this is still 
very much a piece of tool. So you do not believe that AI poses an existential threat, correct? Let me be more nuanced with my answer. First of all, as a scholar, I do respect discussions about this. You know, look, I I live on Stanford campus and where my (laughs) colleagues discuss about the archaeology of Roman Empire all the way to, you know, the smallest uh, bacteria we can find in human bodies. So there's a lot of curiosity in where intelligent machines are going as a potential piece of software is is worthy topic. But as of now, I see AI's more urgent and pressing risks in, in social domain, such as disinformation for democracy, job changes, bias and privacy infringement, and then many more. It's something you can actually feel. It's something that impacts everybody, right. impact everyday people. Mm-hmm. Let's worry more about those than about what AI is up to. I think we need to take responsibility in those issues immediately, Mm -hmm. and that's important. And because of the imbalance of the discussion of this kind of risk and issues versus the existential crisis, I feel it's my responsibility, and especially being the co-director of Stanford Human Center AI Institute, we should be communicating this. Mm -hmm. Your, Your book is part memoir, part history of AI, But I found it interesting that you had to be convinced to include your personal story in the book, right? Tell me about that. Yes. So um, I was invited to write an AI science book to the popular audience about three and a half years ago. I remember it was beginning of COVID. And of course, as a scientist, I wrote for a year, first draft of a science book. And uh, I showed it to my very good friend, Professor John H. Mendy, a philosopher and co-director of Stanford HAI. And he literally said, you have to rewrite. And it was uh, it was uh, pretty hilarious. But, you know, to me, it wasn't that funny when someone told me to rewrite after a whole year. But he was very convincing. He said, look, Feifei, there are many AI technologists who can focus on a pure science book. But if you are talking to the greater audience. There's so many immigrants, young women, people of all walks of life, people of all disciplines. They are lacking a voice they can identify with. And uh, he believed that I could be embody that voice. And I think he's right. So mm. I had to rewrite the book in the double helix structure where I use my personal journey of coming of age as a scientist to carry the very serendipitously intertwined story of AI coming of age. Wow, that's a great metaphor. I've never heard of the double helix metaphor used in telling a story, but it certainly fits. Yeah, I'm a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) You you talk about moving from China to suburban New Jersey as a teenager. And how did this experience shape your curiosity and eventual career in AI? Yeah, Ira, that's a great question. You know, it did dawn on me While I was writing the book, there's so much similarity, far more than I thought, between being an immigrant, especially learning a new language and getting to know a new country, and uh, being a scientist. Both really propels you or puts you in a situation of unknown. And then you have to explore. You have to find your inner North Star and just have that grit and uh, 
determination and develop resourcefulness to go after something that you're curious about. So in a way, maybe the immigrant experience did shape me as a scientist in the sense of be very curious and not afraid of an unknown situation. Hmm. You, st- you studied physics yes. as an undergrad. You like, you like physics. I loved and, physics. Yeah. Actually, uh, that was my first North Star. I you know, between Einstein and everything. This is why I went to Princeton and uh, majored in physics. I I share this love for you. I never had the kind of intelligence to do what you do. But how did physics lead you to computer science and and then on to AI? What's the connection there? Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, a teenager kid, a rather lonely one since I didn't speak much of the... That I can relate to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't speak much of the language, was busy, you know, trying to make a living. I read a lot of Einstein and physics... I love the classes, physics classes. So I went to major in physics. In my book, I also talk about Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, class, right? He taught me astrophysics. He did. He did. Great teacher. Yeah, well, amazing teacher. I did not realize who he was when he was my professor. But what I really loved about physics is the audacity to ask the most fundamental questions about the universe. The physicists are not afraid, you know, you see the stars moving, and then you start to imagine a gravitational force that can be captured in one equation that explains the movement of all the heavenly bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, you go after what is the beginning of space and time. You go after questions like, what's the smallest matter? Can you break down an atom? I mean, these are just in a way, crazy questions to ask, yet physics as a discipline gives you both the rigor as well as the fearless curiosity to chase these questions. And that was what I loved about it. And then in the middle of my physics uh, study during Princeton years, I started reading uh, great physicists of 20th century and Towards the second half of their career, they start to ponder questions beyond the physical world, like Schrodinger wrote, What is Life? Roger Penrose wrote about mind, and Einstein is always such a fluid mind of pondering about so many things. It kind of took me in an unexpected turn to become more curious about life. And once I became more curious of life, I was naturally drawn to the most mysterious, audacious question I could ask as a student at that time, which is, what is intelligence? You know, what makes me humans intelligent and can we make machines intelligent? And that led me to artificial intelligence as well as human neuroscience. So I do have, in a way, a relatively untraditional path into computer science. It was not video games, (laughs) and uh, it was not just hacking software. It was physics. And being fearless about asking the questions. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's that's important in science, isn't it? Oh, it's essential in science. And believing that you can understand what intelligence is. If you're going to make an artificial intelligence, you have to have some sort of belief that you can decipher what intelligence is, do you not? 
Yes and no. I think I believe that journey. I believe that we need to go on that quest. But what is really curious is that the process of making an intelligent machine and the process of understanding brain, human brain, is simultaneously parallel and intertwined. The understanding of the brain inspires AI, but it's not limiting us to make. A different kind of machine, thinking machine. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers and hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about neural networks. We've heard about those things. You work with neural networks. What is a neural network, and how does it compare to what's going on in my own brain? Yeah. Well, let's start with the most. Organic and amazing neural network nature has made, which is the brain. What it? What does our brain look like? There's a piece of work that eventually won Nobel、uh, Prize in Medicine, which is by neurophysiologist Hubo and Vizo in the late 50s. They were wondering about how mammals see. And we really, other than knowing the the functions of retina and eyes, which is really a, a sensor that collects lights and send electric signal back into the brain, we don't really know how you go from photons stimulating your retina to oh, I see a fish.、Yeah. You know that that、yeah. is a computational question, and they were probing. Uh, mammalian brain using electrodes. At that time, it was a very, very advanced、uh, experimental technology. But what they find out are two remarkable things about the the mammalian visual brain, which eventually inspired the computer neural network. The one thing they find out, well, we know the brain is made of small cells called neurons. What they find out is. Every neuron in the cat visual brain, especially close to the retina, like in what we call early stage visual brain, it responds to something simple. It responds to say a moving bar that's oriented. Shapes, if I remember correctly. Right, but it's really simple shape. It's、yeah. really an edge, an、right. edge of a particular orientation. Say forty-five degree to the left. Moving right to the left, and they found out that there's millions and millions of these neurons that all respond to something slightly different at the beginning, just edges, slightly different、mm-hmm. orientation, and then you go to the next layer where the, these neurons send their signal to, and this next layer respond to something slightly more complex, maybe just a corner, you know, and then you keep going. There's a hierarchy. Of information propagation, that eventually you go high enough in the brain, there's something that correspond to. I see an object that's a fish, right? So what they found out is that the fundamental unit, computing unit of the brain, which is a neuron, respond to simple signals, and the meaning of them stack together, 
in the network uh, can give you more complex computation, like seeing a fish. And that concept, that two concepts, individual neural units put together in a in a hierarchical network that propagates information and learn about um, the input signal is the foundation of a neural network. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with computer scientist Fei-Fei Li about her new book, The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. So you have to train the computer? Absolutely, you have to train. What would what does that look like? You give the computer, for example, you want to train the computer to see a cup right. that's in front of me. Right. You give the computer many, many, many cups in different angle, different lighting, and then the neural network has all these neurons. They're small, tiny mathematical equations. They're connected by tiny mathematical functions. But mathematical function has parameters, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you have to tune them. And then you use this training algorithm to tune these parameters. And there is a goal for this algorithm. There are different types of goals. We call them mathematically objectives. Let's just make an example. The objective here is to see this as a cup versus something else that's not a cup. So it's a simple goal of cup and non-cup. Mm -hmm. Well, every time you give it a training picture of a cup, you tweak your parameter so that it tries to answer this picture as a cup. And if it's wrong, the system sends a signal, say you're wrong, and then you tweak again. And then you do this many, many, many times. You train it with cup picture or non-cup picture, and then you eventually learn. That's just one type of right. learning. I'm, I'm simplifying. Well, that's good, because I understood that. That was very good. I'm glad. <laughs> I know you're the creator of ImageNet, which uses this algorithm we've just been talking about, right? Uh, the project wasn't exactly smooth sailing no. all the time, was it? Not met with immediate adoration. When, when did you realize that, that it would shape the field of AI so profoundly that you were right about what you were doing? Well, there's different ways of realizing you're right. When I hypothesized this project, I was driven by the scientific mission and quest. I know that we need to use data to drive AI algorithms. So from that point of view, I was, I was delusionally confident I was mm -hmm. right. <laughs> I did not care that there are so many people who told me that right. was wrong. So that was the one way of feeling I was right. But it doesn't mean it was easy. I was facing a lot of pushbacks. And then, of course, the project proceeded. We finished the project. And then fast forward six years later or five years later after the onset of the project, we got to the moment that the world knows as the beginning of uh, deep learning revolution when ImageNet, convolutional neural network, and literally two mm -hmm. GPUs showed progress that in visual uh, intelligent task that was really unexpectedly big. That was the moment of external validation. How do you keep going when so many people are telling you, well, maybe this is not right? And what is there about your personality? Did you have this uh, growing up? Well, this, Ira, this goes back to what we talked about. 
I, whether you call it personality or whatever, somehow I, I start with that North Star. As a scientist, I'm driven by North Star, that audacious quest. Right. And once I identify that audacious quest, it is relatively easy for me to tune out the other voices. Mm-hmm. I, I know one of the big challenges is the bias baked into some of these algorithms that we're talking about. The algorithms are only as good as the data they're based on, right? Which replicates things like racism and sexism in the real world. How do we get better at that? Yeah, it's an important issue. I mean, algorithm bias is one of the many risks that AI technology brings. And there are multiple ways to mitigate this. There's the technological way I'll get into, but there is also the social norm and regulatory framework, which is also important. On the technology side, we know a lot more today now about where bias come in. It starts with, you know, the way we design and curate data. It has to do with the algorithm itself and also has to do with how we use the output of the algorithm. And and because we now know so much more, there are technological solutions, right? Be careful with your training data, how to balance the data. But there's also the social piece, right? Um, whether you're a researcher or you're uh, developing a product, there's more and more awareness in a social context of the harm of data bias and uh, algorithm bias, and we try to mitigate that through that. Eventually, we will need some guardrails, depending on the vertical space, you know, whether it's healthcare or finance, some of the guardrails needs to be assessing and evaluating issues like bias. Mm-hmm. For so many Black people, the whiz feels like home. <laughs> The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, There are so many fits and starts in history of AI seems like a game changer, then a sort of falls to the wayside. Is the current AI any different than that? Are we on the right path? Is there a right path? Is that the wrong question to ask? That's a great question to ask, and and it's not a wrong question. It's just it requires nuanced answer. Let me first share with you, I do believe we're at the inflection point. I know there has been bubbles and bubble bursts, hypes and uh, deflations, but from a technological point of view, the latest wave, almost exactly one year ago, set forth by OpenAI, but also other technology companies in terms of large language model, in my opinion, is an inflection point of the, the, the capability of this technology, but it's also an inflection point of the public awakening, including policy uh, circle awakening. I want to ask you one last question. If you can take out your, your crystal ball. I mean, there are people alive now who are over 100 years old. Some of them are 110. 
and their lifetime has spanned just about all of modern physics, right? Going back to Einstein and relativity and quantum mechanics and black holes. Can I have you take out this crystal ball? Maybe not look so far ahead 100 years from now, but maybe when I have you back in that seat 10 or 15 years from now. I hope I get back earlier than that. But <laughs> okay. Just... Well, tell me why you would be back earlier and tell me what would be happening to bring you back earlier and where would you see things going? Well, I do think AI is a transformative force in our society's change, upcoming change, and the continued dialogue and exchange of ideas with the public is very important. I do believe this technology will continue to progress. We have seen the language-based models getting more and more incredible, but we also are going to see multimodal. We're going to see vision and videos. We're going to get into more robotic advancements. You know, all this is part of AI's future. Well, we have run out of time. I'm so happy to have you as a guest and to talk with you about all of this. Thank you, Ira. You're welcome. Dr. Fei-Fei Li is the author of the new book, The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI. She's also the founding director of the Human-Centered AI Institute that's at Stanford University, based in Stanford, California. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we're debunking the gendered myths of hunter-gatherers. I'm sci-fi producer Shoshana Buxbaum. See you soon. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.